Welcome to the 59th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg, and my co-host, as always, is Vicki Nichols-Goldstein of the Inland Ocean Coalition. Hello, everyone. Today, we're talking with famed oceanographer, engineer, and ocean pioneer Don Walsh, a retired U.S. Navy captain and lifelong deep water and polar explorer. Don, with some 20 years of time at sea, has worked for and with the Navy, NASA, the White House, corporations, and others on ocean policy and technologies. Still, history will always honor him, along with Jacques Picard, for being the first two humans to reach the lowest point on our planet, seven miles down in the Pacific's Challenger Deep, aboard the submersible Trieste in January of 1960. So thanks for joining us today, Don. Having spent much of the 20th and 21st centuries uh, exploring and protecting our seas, I, I have to ask you, what, what originally got you interested in all things wet and salty? Well, I grew up on San Francisco Bay, and uh, we, uh, it was in the uh, late 30s. Uh, I was uh, being raised by a single mother. So in those days, it was pretty common for us to live in group houses with maybe two other divorcees and their children. And we had a very nice place in Berkeley that uh, was high up on the hill, and we could overlook the harbor, the bay. And uh, didn't have much money for toys, so, but I had a virtual erector set. It was called the Golden Gate Bridge. It was straight out the front window, on the other side of the bay. I watched them build the Golden Gate Bridge. And I watched the ships come and go. Um, and the Fleet Week in those days, because the major part of the Navy was based on the West Coast, out of Long Beach uh, area. And they'd come once a year, and they all the battleships and cruisers and destroyers and anchor in the bay and had these Klieg lights. And they'd go around the sky. And it was a big thing. And my mother got invited to come out to the Nevada, Battleship Nevada, a survivor of Pearl Harbor, by the way. And um, so she brought me with her. And I, all I remember about that ship was certainly big. And they had a <laughs> piano in the wardroom. And I thought, that's pretty neat. This is what I want to do. So I always wanted to be a sailor. And, it's, and uh, by the time I got out of high school in 49, there weren't any jobs in the Merchant Marine. I'd like to have been, you know, freighters and things like that. But uh, they, there's such a large surplus of uh, licensed mariners uh, from the end of the war. You had captains who had sailed as captains during the war or taking third mate's jobs, which is the first step uh, of a licensed officer on board a ship. So the union halls were closed to people like me. And uh, so that wasn't the only way I could get to sea was to join the Navy. So I, I actually, you know, when I was in high school, I was a Naval Reserve unit. Uh, actually, it was an aviation squadron. We used to, we, our airplanes were the, uh, the torpedo bombers, the Avengers. And uh, I was plane captain. Well, I didn't have a driver's license, but I was plane captain on one of these huge beasts. And of course, when you're plane captain, whenever it flies, you fly with it because you've told the pilot that it's full of fuel and lube oil and all the things and everything works. And you check it all out in the morning. And so off we go. So I flew around backwards in the ball turret of that Avenger for a couple of years. We met once a month for a weekend. And uh, this is pretty great stuff for a kid. My mother would have to drive me to the Naval Air Station, Oakland in those days, because uh, I didn't have a car and I didn't have a license. Uh, and so and then I'd go, you know, this huge airplane, uh, check it all out mechanically. And it was a good life. I, I, in fact, I, I wanted to go into naval aviation. I, I figured the best of all worlds was to fly off a carrier. 
now I've got ships and boats and, and airplanes. And uh, my, um, my education officer, my squadron said, no, you don't want to do that because you'll be a reserve officer and, you know, last hired, first fired. What you want to do is go to the Naval Academy and then you've got a guaranteed seat in an airplane the rest of your life because they don't fire regular Navy guys. Uh, I thought, well, I got to go to college anyway. So uh, <laughs> yeah, passed the entrance exams for the Annapolis and went off to do that. But uh, the year I was to graduate, I found out my eyes weren't good enough to fly. So I basically went in another direction, submarines. And from submarines, I, uh, I accessed uh, the Trieste program. I was the first volunteer. I, I passed the Navy's high standards for deep submersible pilot by being the only volunteer. Where yeah. did you sail? I think it's declassified by now. Out of San Diego, uh, we were using sort of training submarine, a target for uh, uh, destroyers practicing, trying to find something. They have a sonar school in San Diego and anti-submarine warfare forces and aviation ships. So we'd go off of San Diego and drive around at a hundred feet, racetrack pattern. They'd try and find us. And, every now and then pop up a smoke float or a flare. So, cause they'd be wandering off towards Mexico and we'd get them back to uh, their students that were learning. But uh, so the, the joke was we were attached to Point Loma in San Diego with the extension cord. And uh, I didn't have as many officers or crew as a first line submarine goes. And so uh, it was good. You had a lot of experience because a lot of the old chiefs and petty, senior petty officers wanted to be home every Friday night. You know, 20 years in the Navy and they were always gone and there's a submarine that never went anywhere. And so uh, I had a lot of experience. Everything worked fine. They made me look good and uh, we had a good time. They were developing this plan to hit the lowest point on earth to go into the Challenger Deep. How, how did they, you said you were the only volunteer, but how did they present it? How did the Navy uh, present what they were doing with the Trieste program? And the first boat I served in was the Rasher, who was the second highest scoring boat in World War II in term of Japanese tonnage. And she was a wonderful ship. That's where I qualified and got my gold dolphins. I was on her a couple of years. And, and I was a bachelor. We'd just come back. We're coming back from the Western Pacific. We've been six months out with the Seventh Fleet. And um, uh, I had finished qual qualifications. So I, my time was free. We're going to have a, about a month alongside just everybody having, you know, some leave time and all that. And um, as we were entering port, I'm thinking about all these wonderful things. As a bachelor, I was gonna really have a good time now, unencumbered. And uh, I was standing back aft uh, on the stern line area, wreathed in smoke from the diesel engines. So I figured nobody can find me back there. Um, I was in charge of putting over the stern line. And um, out of this smoke, comes this guy in white, you know, Captain Force Striper. You see y'all Don Walsh? And I said, yes, sir. I went, what the hell have I done? I haven't been in San Diego for more than a half hour. You know? And Force Striper wants to talk to me. What's going on here? So he said, uh, I want you to come see me. I'm, I'm Walt Small, and I'm the uh, uh, chief of staff for the submarine flotilla Commodore. The submarine flotilla in San Diego at that time had 27 submarines, two submarine tenders, and some other stuff. It was a huge command. There were admirals in the air. They didn't have as many ships under their command, but he was a captain. So it turns out they wanted to uh, create a faux aid to the Commodore, like Admiral's aid, horse holder, to take care of all the uh, you know, 
golf appointments and meet visiting dignitaries and all that stuff. Well, one part of my job was to filter out people that wanted to come brief the Commodore on various schemes. For example, a shoe salesman in San Diego, I've got a way to solve the Soviet submarine threat. And he said, I'd like to come out and talk to the Commodore about it, give you my idea. And I said, well, can you give me an idea so I can ask him if it's possible? He said, sure, just boil the ocean. I said, well, sir, you're a, you're a great American. I'll get back to you. And one of these people that came, actually came to see me in my office on board the submarine tender. Remember, I'm, I'm, I'm a sailor. I want to be back on my ship. And, and uh, I've been hijacked, Shanghai. But the idea was I was just going to be there for six weeks till the next submarine came back from the Western Pacific. Then they go grab another lieutenant qualified in submarines and put him in my job. So I, I could handle that. And this guy's name was Andy Regnitzer. He said, I'm at the Navy laboratory in San Diego and uh, I'm in charge of a program uh, with this new underwater platform we've got, Bathyscaphe Tri Trieste. Well, yeah, it's a pretty big load for me. His name, Recknitzer, is one. I was trying to remember how to say that. Bathyscaphe, what the hell is that? I thought <laughs> is someplace in Italy. What's, what's that doing in San Diego? Well, he explained a little bit of it to me and I went down to see the Commodore. He said, you know, it looks pretty interesting. He said, it is something goes underwater and that's what we do in submarines. I said, yes, sir. And he said, well, invite him to lunch. You come too, you might find it interesting. I thought that was nice because he's, he set a good table. And so at least I'm gonna score a nice lunch. So we, uh, the day comes uh, for the lunch and he has this big tall guy in tow and that was Jacques Picard. And uh, we had lunch at the end of it. The Commodore said, well, it's very interesting about what you can do with this thing. And, going that deep in the ocean so on. How can I help? And Andy Recknitzer was spring-loaded for that one. He said, the only job description in the Navy I can think of that comes close to being a bathyscaphe pilot would be a submarine officer. He said, I'd like uh, to get two submarine officers assigned to the Navy lab to take care of and operate, maintain uh, the bathyscaphe. And Commodore said, well, sure, we can help you with that. So then Captain Small, who I'd introduced to you earlier, the chief staff officer said, Don, send out a radio message to the whole flotilla and uh, in the, the ones that are in East Pack, that is in the West Coast of the United States, several were deployed or in shipyard. And I figured that the statistical number, the N, if you will, for the number of qualified lieutenants on the West Coast of the United States in various submarines was about 70. That, that was the pool we could. So I drafted the message, sent it out, and uh, got zero volunteers. So I went down to see the chief staff officer and said, Captain, uh, we got no volunteers. And the Commodore has promised, has promised them that we'd send over two officers. So we at least get it started. And, uh, you know, you know, as much as I love being on this staff here and, and uh, you know, driving my desk around and never going back to submarines, uh, I'll be the volunteer and we won't embarrass the Commodore. And he decided, yeah, that's uh, probably what we ought to do. So that's how I passed the high, Navy's high standards for Bathyscaphe pilot. I was the only volunteer. Uh, that's remarkable. And, and that would entail you traveling pretty far deep into the ocean. What was it, like 35,900 feet or? Yeah, about that, yeah. But give or take a few feet, yes. wow. I made my first dive in the chest of 4,000 feet. Well, golly, I'd 
you know, five months earlier, gone to test depth of my submarines, deepest possible depth it could go, uh, according to Navy uh, regulations, if you will, at uh, 300 feet. Now I'm at 4,000 feet. I'm thinking, boy, this is pretty special. And, uh, you know, why at 4,000 feet? Because that's as deep as we could get off San Diego, close, to, you know, for operating out of the Navy lab. And then it was revealed to me that actually we're trying to prepare the bathyscaphe to uh, dive to the deepest place in the world ocean. If you can dive to uh, 20,000 feet, you can see 98% of the seafloor. Only 2% is deeper than 20,000 feet. And that's where you get in your deep trenches, which are mostly over 30,000 feet deep. And there's a series of them around the world, but that's only 2%. So we've never been there to do scientific research. And I wanna emphasize that Naval, the Office of Naval Research, the Navy bought the Trieste to use it as a research platform to be able to take science, a trained mind and trained eyes, if you will, to the deepest places in the ocean. It was an oceanographic research platform. Our job uh, initially at the Navy lab was to test it to the extreme to make sure it was a safe, productive platform for uh, civilian oceanographers to use. And so even our deepest dive was piloted by Picard and myself as a couple of engineers. We were test pilots to see if the thing could you know, exist at the deepest possible depth because we had no way of testing it, you know, putting it in some test chamber on land. There's, you know, 16,000 pounds per square inch pressure on this thing. You just couldn't duplicate that with some kind of test facility. So we tested it by doing it. What I'm really amazed at when you think about it, like no one has been to that depth. And you also had a problem with one of the windows and the pressure is immense at, at, that, at that depth. And obviously if that window fully broke, you would be obviously not here. So um, how did you handle that? That seemed like it could be a, a nerve wracking experience. It was interesting. We, uh, first of all, I, I hasten to uh, explain that it was not a pressure boundary. The, to get into the, the cabin of the Trieste, when it's floating on the surface, the cabin, the sphere is hanging underneath the flotation uh, or the float as we call it, which is filled with aviation gasoline because that's how we get our buoyancy. It's an underwater balloon, but you can't put gas in there that is like helium or hydrogen because you take a child's balloon and squish it flat with your hand. You've got to have something solid, easy to manage, meaning a fluid that's lighter than water. Well, oil floats on water, doesn't it? And if you get the lightest possible fraction of petroleum uh, that's commonly found uh, from a supply point of view, then it's gas, aviation gasoline especially in the Navy, everywhere you go, you can get gasoline. Now we didn't use it except as buoyancy. We use a fraction of it to adjust buoyancy on a dive. But basically we, at, when we were getting ready to take it out of the water and to maintain it, we gave it back to the Navy. And then the Navy air people at uh, the air, Naval Air Station at North Island, San Diego, could never understand why a perfectly good Navy vessel would want to give back aviation gasoline, but uh, something like 54,000 gallons of it kept us afloat. So, okay, getting back to the window. Uh, so the ball, the cabin where we lived is hanging beneath that. It's about 18 feet below the water. So you have to be some way to access it when you're floating on the surface. So there's this tube that comes down through the, the float, the gas tank, if you will. 
just a cylinder tube with a ladder. And you at the bottom is the hatch to get into the cabin. The top <clears throat> is another hatch uh, to keep water out when you're towing it on the surface. But during the dive, you don't need that space to be empty. It'd be horribly hard to harden that up, terribly difficult to harden that up to withstand that pressure I mentioned earlier, 16,000 pounds per square inch. So you just let it free flood, let it fill with water. Well, at the back of that tube, where it comes down beneath the float, there was a, a curved plastic window. That allowed us to look through a viewport in the entrance hatch to look at aft, look at the back end of the submersible. It was not for piloting or making scientific observations. It was just an operational um, convenience to have that window. And so we could look through the water-filled tube and at the back of the water-filled tube was this curved window. Well, when they built this window, they didn't elongate the holes for the bolts that hold it to the metal frame. In other words, they were circular holes rather than oval. Well, plastic is exactly that. When it gets your pressure on both sides, take a piece of modeling clay, make a rectangle out of it, put it between your hands and push. What happens? Squirts out the edges, doesn't it? Well, if that's not free to move on the edges, it stores up a lot of energy. And that's what happened. So we get to 30,000 feet, there's this great bang. And we don't know what it is. We know we're okay. All the gauges read fine, no problem. I mean, if, the, if it hadn't been a pressure boundary, we wouldn't even been aware that we were dead because it would happen faster than your brain could take aboard the fact that you're dead. It, it makes sense. Um, so that's what happened. That's why it happened. Now, the problem there is, okay, there's a crack in that window. We didn't know what it was until we landed on the bottom. And I turned on the light to look back at the other end, the back end of this, the Mathis gap, and I could see this line across that window. Uh, okay, that's fine so far. We were 30,000 feet, we said, let's continue. And then when we got to the bottom, I figured out what it was. I told Jacques, I said, this is the problem. Okay, when we get back up, we can, from the inside of the cabin, uh, use compressed air, we got a, you know, a valve, to blow the water out of that trunk, that tube, okay? So we can let ourselves out, open the hatch, go up the ladder, go topside. We don't need external help. So it's kind of, you can hear the air blowing and you can see the water come by the window there and uh, the water level, when the air starts blowing free like it's not being resisted. Uh, then, you know, it's dry, you can turn off the air, open the hatch and go out. Now, if that crack was too big, then as soon as you turn the air off, the water come back in. So we would have had to live inside that cabin for a couple of days. It took- Oh my gosh. <laughs> I towed it four knots and we were 250 miles offshore from Guam. So I had Hershey bars, we had Nestle Swiss uh, candy, and that was our, uh, our, our, uh, our diet. Your backup plan. <laughs> well, we ate a little on the trip, but yeah. Uh, and fortunately we got back up to the surface and put the air in and it seemed to be stable. So uh, we, we decided better get out of there pretty fast. We climbed out, shut the hatch behind us, pulled it shut in case water did come in eventually, went up the ladder and the rest is history. And you were successful. That was a nine hour dive. It was uh, five hours and some change going down. We stayed 20 minutes on the bottom. 
and then the rest of the time was coming back up. Uh, we went down very slowly because no one had any really good seafloor charts or topography. You know, we don't want to get spiked on a, a seamount if we're going down or hit something uh, because we're not right aligned up with the trench. We had no uh, machines to measure the depths. Um, you know, no one had uh, the ability to, uh, uh, you know, to bottom scan sonar systems that map out the seafloor in great detail. Those were decades away. Why didn't this become the first of a major exploration program for the deep ocean, like the Mercury capsule led us into space? Uh, well, you know, we were slightly ahead of, but not that far ahead of NASA being formed. And uh, we were always in the uh, umbra of the National Space Program. That's, uh, you know, it's sexy. Uh, you want to talk about son et lumière, uh, the idea these guys wearing these really nice pajamas and the American flag here and their practice here and funny hats and I understand it's all safety stuff, but, uh, and then getting in this thing built by the low bidder and you know, this huge noise and rocket going up, we couldn't do that. I mean, all we did is we got in the thing and when we dove, the only reason it was gone, you see a little swirl of bubbles where the sub went under. No noise, no fancy clothing. So we just, we weren't as sexy as space. And with all due credit to them, I, 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 in another life, and it's another story, I did apply for the Apollo program because uh, that's why I did my doctoral dissertation in uh, remote sensing oceanography. Uh, so I, I have a lot of respect for the space program. I'm just saying parity would have been nice in terms of budgets and policy. And a blue world that we still haven't explored at the levels we've explored the moon and Mars. It, was, it would be 54 years before another person went to, to the deepest point on yeah. our planet. Yeah. And, and you were with you were on his mothership on it when yeah, Jim Cameron. Yeah, because he had, I had worked a, a, a little bit as a technical advisor on Abyss. When I was a, a, on the faculty at USC, uh, the Navy Motion Picture Office in Hollywood would call me up or if they needed a, a technical advisor on films and such that the Navy just couldn't afford a, to loan them an officer, a serving officer. They'd ask me if I'd do this. So I worked on quite a few things. Jim and so we were acquainted. And he, he asked me to come down to Malibu to uh, visit his office. It's something he wanted to talk to me about. And he said, you know, I got this, I had this dream that I want to build a, a couple of one man submersibles to go to the deepest place in the world ocean. And by one man, we can really you know, reduce the engineering complexity and so on and, and do an effective job. And he said, do you want to go along? I said, sure, you know, <laughs> in for seconds. Uh, it turned out eventually that he only built one sub, but uh, I was involved a, a bit towards the end when he was completing the construction in Australia. And then uh, I was actually on board the mothership with Jim uh, when he made his dive. I was the last person to talk to him and the first person to greet him when he came back up. That was, was nice. I, I never thought anybody would get back there 52 years later. You know, Jacques and I, when, after he surfaced after our dive in January 60, we were waiting to be picked up by the boat from the mothership. And uh, we were just talking about, well, when do you think the next person is going to be here? The next people will be doing this sort of thing. And um, we kind of agreed to be maybe around two years, maybe three years, somebody come back. I didn't realize it was 52 years. I never thought I'd live to see all of this. And then, you know, surprise, not only was on Jim's expedition, 
I was on Victor Vescova's expedition in 2019 uh, when he dove his sub, his two-man sub, to the Challenger Deep. And Victor's done that 14 times. So you want to talk about a reliable, repeatable system. Uh, that's what you're talking about. And your son's gone down with him as well? Yeah, I, I would have never asked Victor for that because I know what they cost. In fact, Victor was offering some of the seats on a dives challenger deep at, I think it was around a million dollars a pop for you know, the wealthy adventure. It just had to get another check off. Um, <laughs> not all of them, that's just rare. I mean, a very small percentage of his deepest dives were you know, tourism kind of things. He asked me, we were in good communications, and he said, what do you think about your son doing a, a, going to the same place you did all those years ago? I said, well, I, he'd love it, but I'm not going to ask you to do this, Victor, because I know it, this costs. And, you know, he's financing all this out of his own pocket. And no big donors or anything else. And he's in for about $50 million to build a sub and all of that. And I think the burn rate uh, operations per month was about a million dollars a month. So wow, precious time. Each of those seats is precious. He said, well, I, I'd like to do it. He says, well, I'm, and if, you know, you want to do it, but I'm not asking because I, uh, I would, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel good about it. So I didn't call any chits or anything. He just did it because he thought it'd be a nice thing to do. So he and Kelly had a grand time and, uh, yeah, Kelly's, uh, been dining out on it ever since. <laughs> what I'd like to know, you know, your opinion on, let's just take one topic. What are, what are your thoughts on, say, deep ocean mining, extracting minerals from the bottom of the sea? I wholly agree with the uh, people hold a, a negative opinion of it right now, uh, because we have not done the necessary environment. I mean, on land, we don't hesitate to do environmental impact studies before we take, undertake most uh, major activities uh, that will have an effect on the environment. And I don't understand why that's not considered to be the same rule when you're in the oceans. They haven't done that kind of work. And the International Seabed Authority, which is a UN agency located in uh, Kingston, Jamaica, they kind of govern the allocation of, of uh, mining sites and that sort of thing. I, I think that they're they're moving too quickly. They have not had the budgets they need to really uh, invoke a full-grown, perhaps, environmental study program of various mining sites. And the thing is, it's it is a it is a uh, activity. It's going to disrupt where you're working. It's kind of like clear-cutting the forest um, because it's it doesn't differentiate between uh, the ore, if you will, the uh, material they bring up and the things that live with that or the seafloor, you're gonna scrape off. And these are organisms, many of them in thousands of years to populate an area. They're not gonna repopulate quickly. Just like if you clear cut a forest, if you don't replant, then you get a, a lot of junk stuff moves in and grows because they're, they're not competing anymore with the trees. I think that there has to be a convincing amount of, of uh, study being done and types of potential mining sites and it'd be nice if it be nice it was site specific. In other words, you get a license to mine. It's two steps actually, just like offshore petroleum. You get an exploration permit, and you can go test an area to see if there's anything there. Just like you drill 
test wells in, in offshore oil and gas development, you, you get a lot of dry holes. So you're not gonna move a whole uh, production operation into that area until you've done that exploratory drilling. And so exploratory mining, I think is okay. I, I would be for that. First of all, to check out an area, is there anything there of value? That's, that's called resource, something of value. And it's a difference between a, a mineral and an ore, if you will, it's, the, it's economically valuable. And so I think that that's permissible because your impact on doing uh, uh, test mining is pretty minimal compared to full on scale uh, commercial mining. So I, I, I can support that, but I can't support awarding uh, mining permissions, if you will, or licenses that to areas that have not been carefully uh, um, studied. In other words, environmental impact for, and should be area specific. Um, that makes sense. And it makes sense. And it's not only 600 scientists and policymakers who are calling for moratorium, but now you have major corporations like Google and Panasonic and BMW saying they're not going to accept any deep sea mineral materials until there's the good science. And, and that's a larger question, which is, you know, with more than 60 years of exploration under your belt, it seems that we still don't do enough exploration that, that we're, you know, more willing to exploit the ocean than to fully understand it. So I guess the the question is, what would be your vision in terms of how we move forward with science and exploration on the ocean that gives us life? Well, I think that uh, with respect to ocean mining, the ISA needs to look in the mirror. I'm not saying they're invertebrate. I'm sure that people are, make decisions, but they seem to be more governed by the users, the potential users, than the overall consideration of the health of the oceans. And, that's got to stop. But overall, I would hope that ISA would get some backbone and, uh, and become a truly independent and a steward, steward, if you will, responsible for stewardship of these deep ocean resources. As to fisheries, that's just greed, isn't it? Uh, and uh, it's gotten worse. And the only thing we don't need, uh, in my view, in world fisheries, the global fishery, is better technology because Right now they can vacuum up everything. And we know that some top species are, are under severe pressure if not, not extinct, but hard to find. And uh, the, the high, higher order uh, fishes. And, and uh, you've got these motherships, you get the, the well, you're probably familiar with, uh, what's his name's book, uh, former New York Times uh, guy. Oh, Ian. Ian Urbina. We did an interview with him a few months okay. ago. Slavery at sea, they, they don't even need to go home. Mothership brings out fuel and groceries uh, to the catcher boats, picks up the fish, catch, takes it back. And uh, yes, there are ways of, of uh, limiting this abuse. Uh, the, you know, the uh, electronic uh, beacon systems, they put it was AIS on ships. Right. They, they turn them off. Uh, and I think what you need to do is go for port sanctions that, Okay, mothership, you better carry a lot of fuel because there's no port in the world is going to refuel you. You've got to go back to your flag country. And then through our diplomacy, we lean hard on these flag states that have these uh, basically pirate fishing boats because uh, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. If it's not that, then we can worry about uh, the ocean becoming more acidic. So the fewer fish are 
being produced, if you will, by nature. So there's a lot of competing things and all of it's not good news. I'm wondering whether or not the world can really act in time to save a great deal of what's happening in the oceans. I mean, I remember talking about with uh, Jacques Cousteau about this many, many years ago when he was first sounding the call that the oceans are dying. And I thought, well, that's, you know, it's good press and it's good for your uh, visibility, kind of doing the, uh, the sky is falling sort of thing. But uh, I'm just thinking he was just a real pioneer and in, in in some, somehow foreseeing the trouble with the health of the oceans. Uh, because everything I look at is, is not very positive. I, I can't see good news coming. Well, I think I the guess... one piece of good news is that at one point the ocean was very limited, the ocean health to a small number of people, where now I think the general population is getting information about the challenges and there's more engagement, more cross collaboration and the word is getting out. So having this precautionary principle which you're talking about for the deep ocean mining and being aware of how nations can actually work with their communities to solve these problems, I think is a little bit of good news. Yeah, sustained use of ocean wealth resources. David and I would like to thank you so much for being on the Rising Tide Ocean podcast. Thank you, and we'll say goodbye. Thank you, and we'll say goodbye. Okay, that'll <laughs> work. <laughs> Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curlow. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support is provided by Studio Cape May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbark. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at www.bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.